You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Now will you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. When you found your place, let's bow our heads in a moment of prayer before we begin our study. Our great God, it is in your word that we see truth and that we see light. It is illumination to our minds and our hearts, uh, though things are intellectually far beyond us in darkness to our intellect. They are sunshine to our soul, and these things which are deep in your word and profound mysteries, we just rejoice that you have revealed them to us in your word and that you have given us a measure of illumination and understanding in these things. We pray that as we look in this, your word about Christ and his relationship to his church, that we would get, uh, grow in our appreciation of you and what Christ has done for us and our appreciation of how you love us and care for us and the good news that is here for those who belong to you. We thank you for this special relationship that is ours through your son and that you have in eternity past predestined for your own glory and for our good. And so we bow before your word and we pray that you would grant to us understanding and insight today in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Almost everywhere that we turn in Scripture in the New Testament, we are confronted with the reality that when the church is described or when Christians are described, they are described in terms where it is obvious that we have, as believers, a unique and special relationship to Christ that the rest of the world does not have. I was thinking through my mind this morning, and I cannot think, I was just kind of surveying the different references that I remember from Scripture in my mind, I cannot think of a single time in Scripture in all of the New Testament where Christians are referred to and referred to in such a way that the way in which we are referred does not sort of intone this unique and special relationship that Christians have with Christ, special blessings that the rest of the world does not have. For instance, in John 10, we read that Jesus refers to those who are his own, his own. And we are his own, not by virtue of the fact that we have made ourselves his own or that we volunteered and we signed up, but that the Father gave us to his Son. That makes us Christ's. Uh, We read in the New Testament about the bride of Christ. That is a relationship that the rest of the world does not enjoy. We are the bride of Christ. Those who are in Christ, who belong to him, we are related to him like a bride to a bridegroom. He We have been betrothed to him. He has died for us. He has saved us. He sanctifies us. He redeems us. We are his bride, the church. We are the body of Christ. That is also a token of a very special relationship. We are the sheep of the good shepherd. We are the church, the called out ones. Uh, We are the elect. We are the called. We are the saints, the sanctified ones. We are children of truth, children of light. All of those, all of those designations speak in some way of this unique relationship that exists between Christ and those who belong to His. The relationship that we have with Christ is different than the relationship that Christ has with all of the rest of humanity and the world. Now the question is, according to John 10, how do we get into this relationship? This special relationship that we have with Christ, by virtue of what do we become His? Is it by virtue of a decision that I make? Is it by virtue of some special wisdom or insight that I have that the rest of the world does not share? How do I become His? And the answer to that in John 10 is, I become His because, Jesus said, the Father has given them to me. 
Now that is a truth that you and I enjoy. It is a blessing that you and I enjoy that is not enjoyed by the bulk of humanity. It is not enjoyed by anybody who is outside of Christ. Only those who are in Christ have been given to the Son. And we saw last week that He, by obedience to the Father, in obedience to the Father, saves and secures and sanctifies all those whom the Father has given to Him. He died for His sheep. He died for His bride. He purchased those who belong to Him. And in that act, listen, He purchased every good thing that comes to you. The death of Christ did not just buy you redemption, forgiveness of sins. Every good thing that has ever come to you has come by virtue of the fact that Christ paid or bought that blessing for you. You have been immensely blessed just to belong to Him. Now you would, you would think in a normal scenario that that would cause you to be kind of puffed up and prideful, right? You might think, well, that must be something special. He would do all of that for me and love me like that and make me a special relationship to Him like that? Is that a reason for pride? No, because you've got to go back one step and ask yourself, what did I do to deserve that? And the answer to that is nothing. Not only did you not deserve that, you couldn't deserve it. And in truth, you deserve the exact opposite. You deserve to be abandoned and left just like the rest of humanity. There, there is nothing in any of this unique relationship, there is nothing in there that should create within us even one iota of pride or self-confidence or arrogance whatsoever. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day and remind ourselves, I'm a wretched sinner and I deserve none of these rich blessings that have been given to me. So in John chapter 10, we are looking at what the shepherd has done for his sheep, those who are specially related to him by virtue of the fact that the Father has given to them. He owns these sheep. He owns them and is related to them in a, in a unique and special way. What has the shepherd done for those who belong to him? Who are the beneficiaries of the sacrifice that is the sheep? So in verses 11 through 18, which is the end of this discourse, we're looking at the beneficiaries of the sacrifice. And then next week in verses 17 and 18, the voluntary nature of this sacrifice, the voluntary and sovereign nature of the sacrifice that the shepherd make. But today we're kind of finishing up this passage from 11 through 16. We've looked at verses 11 through 13, and we saw that Christ died for his sheep because he owns them. They're his. He is no hireling. We belong to him. And because of that, because of that reality, Christ has died for his sheep. Now secondly, he dies for us because he knows us. This is verse 14 through 16, 14 and 15 actually. And then a third reason, he died to unite us, verse 16. So he died for us, he sacrificed because he owns us, because he knows us, and because he unites his sheep. He owns his sheep, he knows his sheep, and he unites his sheep. All of that is contained in the sacrifice that Christ made for his sheep. So let's pick it up at verse 14. This is where we actually left off at the end of verse 13. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now you'll notice that verse 14, the beginning of that verse, and the end of verse 15 is sort of a repeat of what is stated in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and then you skip to the end of verse 15, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So he repeats it in verse 14 and 15, but there's something stuck into the middle of that repeated statement, and what is it? I know my own, and my own know me, even as I know the Father, and the Father knows me. So now we have introduced into this something that is different or unique, and that is this idea of of a knowledge or an intimacy and a love that Christ has with those who are his own, that he does not have and does not share with those who are not his own. 
So there is a group that belonged to him. And I want you to notice how he repeats this idea of some of us belonging to him. I know my own. I know my own. There is a group of humanity that belongs to him, that has been given to him by the Father. And look look at the freedom and the, the liberality with which Jesus describes this. I know those who are mine. I'm surprised often how Christians will try and shy away from any talk about the subject of election or divine predestination or the giving of the Father to the Son of a group of people. It's, it's like Christians don't want to talk about that. Don't, don't talk about election. Don't talk about the sovereignty of God because people get offended. People get upset. People don't understand it. They'll misunderstand what you say. We should just sort of ignore that and let's gloss over that and move on to other things, bigger and better things. <laughs> bigger and better things than that doctrine? Seriously? Is there anything bigger or better than that doctrine? Do you realize that that act of the Father choosing you and giving you to His Son, that blessing secured every other blessing that has come to you. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, your election, your redemption, your adoption, the forgiveness of sins, your eternal destiny, your glorified body, the new heavens and the new earth, every your sanctification, glorification, every single blessing that has come to you in salvation was secured and guaranteed by that one first initial blessing. When the Father gave you to His Son, everything else was given to you with that one blessing. The fact that Christians would not want to talk about that, that would want to ignore that, has to be, I think, the greatest satanic ploy that has ever plagued the church. That is the mother of all other blessings, that blessing. We ought to rejoice in that. We ought to bask in that. Thank God for that every single day. Think about that reality every single day. Live your life in light of that reality. It will destroy your pride. It will increase your thankfulness to God for all that He has done for you in Christ Jesus when you realize that me, an undeserving sinner, I deserve nothing more, nothing more than anybody else in humanity. But God, by His grace, secured every spiritual blessing that has come to me in that one act of giving me out of humanity to His Son the mother of all blessings, that we are His own. Jesus speaks very freely and very easily about those who belong to Him. He doesn't shy away from it. Why should we, this doctrine of election? Why should we shy away from such a beautiful thing? That's the mother of all of our blessings, that we belong to Him. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own. And this idea of knowing His own is something that, this idea of a shepherd knowing his sheep, I should say, is something that is would be familiar with first century Jews and shepherds and people who grew up in that agrarian culture that probably you and I don't necessarily appreciate the idea here of a shepherd knowing his sheep. Uh, it was it was understood back then in their culture that a shepherd could identify his sheep at a distance. Uh, some shepherds, and it's been shown that eastern shepherds could do this, they could identify their sheep even blindfolded. You could blindfold a shepherd and you could set him loose amongst a flock And the shepherd, just by virtue of touching the sheep and feeling their head and their fur and their legs, would be able to tell which sheep belonged to him. He knew his sheep so well that that shepherd could tell that sheep from all of the rest of the sheep, even blindfolded. He didn't even have to hear the sheep. He could just feel the sheep and he knew that it was his because he knew them that well. This word know, gnosko, is a word that refers to not the type of knowledge that you and I have of maybe facts or events or certain people or people's names, not a shallow superficial knowledge, but a deep, intimate, profound, experiential knowledge. It is the word to know that is used of sexual intercourse in the Bible. And it's not necessarily a sexual word, but it's just that that act within marriage is a reflection of the type of intimate knowledge that is contained in this word gnosko. He knows us. Not that he just knows our names. Oh yeah, my sheep is Jim Osmond and Dave Rich and Mel Jensen. I I know their names. No, no, it's different than that. 
He knows specially in a way you, if you're in Christ, and he knows me in a way that is different than his knowledge of all the rest of people. He knows us intimately. He knows us exclusively. He knows us in a profound way. That ought to be good news to you, to us, that our shepherd knows us in that way. This word knowledge refers to um, the, the idea of an exclusive, almost an exclusive type of knowledge, a knowing, a loving, and a choosing knowledge. It's that type of knowing. Let me illustrate that to you. I know, we use the term knowing in all kinds of different ways in English. Uh, I know probably most everybody's name in this congregation. Some of you I know better than others. Some of you I've known longer than others. Right? I know probably the name, and I'm just glancing over top of everybody. I probably know at least the first name of every woman in this congregation that I'm looking at today. But I don't know any woman in this congregation like I know my wife. Now, you ought to be thankful that for that. My wife is thankful for that. I'm thankful for that. Everybody should be thankful for that. But listen, I know my wife because I've lived with her for 20 years. I know her wants. I know her needs. I know her desires. I know her interests. I know the things that she likes, the things that she doesn't like, what food she likes, what food she doesn't like. I know her love language. I know, I know everything about her because I've lived with her for 20 years. I know her like I know nobody else. That's the type of knowledge that we are describing. It's not just a sensual knowledge. Don't think of this term in being some sort of a, a perverse sexual term because that's not it. It is a deep, intimate, detailed, intricate knowledge of somebody by experiencing them and knowing them on a profound level. I know profoundly, deeply, and intimately my own sheep. Now, does that mean that the shepherd doesn't know any of the other sheep? He doesn't know them in that way. And it's not that the shepherd doesn't know of the other sheep. It's that this knowledge that he has of his sheep is uniquely shared with them. And they know the shepherd in that way. Our relationship with Christ is one of, of a deep, profound, and intimate, and reciprocal knowledge and, and love. And an and a, and a, and a affection. That's the word that's used here. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't know about any of the other sheep. As if he's ignorant of their names or things about them or details of them. It is just that there is a type of knowing and loving and choosing that he has shared with his sheep that he has not shared with all of those who do not belong to him. My love for my wife is exclusive. I do not share that with anybody else. Her love for me is exclusive. She doesn't share that with anybody else. That's the idea there. My knowing of her is different than my knowing of everybody else. I discriminate my love for my wife. Christ discriminates in his love for his bride, the church. He died for his church. He died for his bride. He gave himself for his bride that he might sanctify us and purify us and present us faultless before his throne with exceeding joy. That is a love and a knowing that is not given and poured out upon everybody else. We understand this from the Old Testament. Look, even a cursory reading of the Old Testament reveals that God did not treat all of the nations the way he treated Israel, did he? There were certain issues of grace and election and love and predestination and affection and blessings that he poured out on Israel that he did not pour out on all nations equally. Why? Because they were his chosen people, specially related to them. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, God said, Of you, O Israel, of all the nations of the world I have known, same word used here in the Septuagint, all the nations of the world, I have known you alone. It doesn't mean that God did not know any other nation. He was unaware of any of the other nations. It's that Israel... You're special. You're special. Out of all the nations, I have poured out my blessings upon you and made a covenant with you. You are uniquely, in a special sense, my people. The same idea here with the good shepherd and his sheep. I know my own, and my own know me. Now, in what sense is our knowledge of the 
of the shepherd the same as his knowledge of us. It is an intimate knowledge. It's a knowledge that, and a love that we have for Christ that we do not have for every other shepherd out there. Right? Is not your love and affection for Christ different than your love and affection for every other religious leader or everybody else who claimed to be a Messiah or God? Look, my love and affection for Christ is reserved for him and for him alone. It's an exclusive love and affection, and it's reciprocal love and affection. Look at verse, the end of verse 14 and the beginning of verse 15. Or actually, it's in verse 15. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Now, there's an illustration of the type of love that he is using. I know my own, and my own know me, just as I know the Father, and the Father knows me. Now, in what sense is the love or knowledge of Jesus toward the Father and the Father toward His Son similar to or an illustration of the love that the Good Shepherd has for His sheep and the sheep have for the Good Shepherd? In what way is this love the same? It seems to me that it should be obvious to us that the the analogy here between the love of the Father and the Son and the love of the sheep and the shepherd, the analogy is not uh, pertaining to or regarding a degree of knowledge. In other words, you and I cannot possibly understand the depth and the grandness and the, the infinitude of the love that exists between the Father and the Son. We can't even get a glimpse of that. It is beyond our ability to understand how one infinitely divine person without sin can perfectly love another perfectly infinite divine person who has no sin. And how that love could be reciprocated. The love that exists between the Father and the Son is so infinite that you and I cannot even begin to grasp a a sliver of that. So in what sense is our love for the shepherd like the love of the Father and the Son? I don't think it has anything to do with degree. Because any sane person in this room would have to recognize and admit that our love for Christ is not what it should be. My love for Christ is not what I want it to be. If this is what it should be, what I want it to be is somewhere below that because I'm fallen and I don't even understand what it should be fully. But in reality, I know that my love for Christ is not what it, what I even want it to be, let alone what it should be. It certainly is not as infinite or deep and profound as the love of the Father for the Son. So we're not talking about an issue of degree that our love for Christ is equal to the love that the Son has for the Father. But here's what is being, here's what is being said. Our love for Christ is reciprocal, just like the love of the Father for the Son. It's a two-way love. He loves his own, knows his own, his own know him and love him. Just as the Father knows the Son and the Son knows the Father. It's a two-way love. It's not just that the shepherd knows his sheep. But listen, we know the shepherd too. That's the whole point of the analogy, right? We hear his voice. We know him. We do not come to the voice of strangers. We will not follow after wolves in sheep's clothing because we know him. We know that shepherd. Just as the Father knows the Son and the Son knows the Father, so my love for Christ is a reflection of that love. It's a reciprocal love. And it's a deep and it's a profound and it's an intimate and it's an exclusive love that I have for Christ and that He has for me because I am His sheep and because I belong to Him. This is good news to to us. This ought to be comforting to you that to know that the shepherd knows you like, like you cannot even possibly imagine, knows you better than you know yourself, that the shepherd would know every want, every need, every desire, every weakness, every strength, every failing, every temptation you can't resist, every temptation you can resist, every trial you can handle, every trial you can't handle. He knows you better than you know yourself. You and I can, can love him like a friend and trust him like a savior and rest in him as a sovereign because he knows his own. And he doesn't give us more than we can handle. He knows us intimately. That's good news. It also terrifies me just a little, if I have to be honest. It terrifies me just a little that he would know me that well. But I can rest in the fact that he is good, right? And that he is, 
he, he has designed and crafted all of his plans for me based upon his glory and his goodness. He knows me and he knows his own and I get to know him. The good news is that though I do not know Christ as I, as I want to know him or as I should know him, I will know him that way someday. I will know him that way someday. Because he has brought us into this relationship of knowing him by virtue of the fact that the Father has given us to his Son, I can grow in that knowledge of him by applying the means of grace and I can know him better tomorrow and next week and next month than I do today because I'm pursuing him and growing in it. But he, he by his grace has started that relationship and now I have a love for him and that love will grow. And when I leave this body of flesh and I am blessed to die and you are blessed to get rid of me and I leave this earth like that, when all of that happens, I will be free from this and then I will know as I am known and then I will love him as I should and it will be without sin. And without any hindrances whatsoever. So though I do not know him as I should, someday I will know him as I should. And I grow and I pursue that knowledge by applying the means of grace. Because he knows his own and we know him. And we grow in our knowledge of him. This is an inter-Trinitarian love, by the way. Jesus described this in John chapter 17. And I want you to listen to this because this is, this is a mysterious and a marvelous thing. That I, I don't think that we completely understand the, the prof- profound profundity the, the deep nature of this. I don't think we fully understand this. Listen to John 17. Jesus in his high priestly prayer said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, speaking of the disciples who were there, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Of the glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love me, even as you have loved them, or love them as you, even as you have loved me. This idea of the shepherd knowing his sheep, because of the Father has given us to his Son, listen, his church has been brought into this inter-trinitarian love and knowledge. So that Christ is in us, the Father is in Christ, we are so united with God in Christ that we share in and bask in that unity and that glory and that love. And what we experience here is just a glimpse, a shadow of what is to come. But God has given us to His Son, and in doing that, He has brought us into the loving, knowing relationship that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we will enjoy that for all of eternity in person. Doesn't that blow your mind? And I don't even think we can begin to grasp the concept of what salvation has done to us in, in that regard of bringing us into that inter-Trinitarian love. It's an exclusive love that the Father has for the Son, and we share in that and we bask in that. So Christ has died for us not only because he owns us, but because he knows us. He knows his own and his own know him, even as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. And now verse 16, the third reason, because he unites his sheep. He unites the sheep. Verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Now I ask you, what is this? This other fold. This is almost new information, isn't it, in terms of the analogy? Up until now from verse 1 all the way through the end of verse 15, we have been thinking in this analogy in terms of one fold that all the shepherds brought their sheep to at night and all the sheep were in there all mixed together and the shepherd comes up to that one sheepfold, as it were, with the door and he calls out and the doorkeeper opens. He calls his sheep. His sheep come out of that fold to him and we, we get that picture and that analogy in our head. And now verse 16 introduces us to this 
almost an entirely new piece of information. I have other sheep which are not in this fold. I must bring those sheep also, and I will call them out. They will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Who or what is this other fold that Jesus is talking about in verse 16? Before I answer that question, I'm going to give you what this other fold is not. I'm going to show you how this verse is sometimes abused. This, today's false teaching, is brought to you by the letters T, D, and the word Jakes. T.D. Jakes, who is a false teacher, was on NPR. And listen, T.D. Jakes is a false teacher, not because he twists this particular verse of Scripture, but because he is a non-Trinitarian, does not believe in the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. He denies three persons, one God. He is a non-Trinitarian. He has the gospel wrong entirely. And he is a wealth and health, wealth, and word of faith prosperity preacher. So he is a false teacher before he even starts talking about the gospel of John. But in 2006, he was on NPR, and he was being interviewed about some of his um, interfaith activities because he's a rising star in evangelicalism. And of course, T.D. Jakes is very influential, and so they had him on NPR. And a lady from Portland called in. Her name was Annette, and here's the question that she asked him. Listen to the question. I'm a Muslim here in Portland. I'm part of a Shiite community, and we had a wonderful interface dialogue. I think she meant interfaith, but it says interface. Interface dialogue last weekend with a local Unitarian church. And I'd like to ask you, please, to speak about concrete experiences you've had as far as interfaith dialogue goes, and also would like to ask you, do you feel that only Christians could hope to enter heaven? End quote. Now, what an opportunity to present the gospel on national radio. If only T.D. Jakes had known what the gospel was, he could have presented it. Now, I ask you this question. Before I read you his answer, can you imagine John MacArthur whiffing it this big on a national stage? The answer to that is no. Now, listen to T.D. Jakes' answer. Quote, very great question. When it comes to, I'm just going to do this in my own voice because that's going to hurt after a while. Quote, very great question. When it comes to interfaith experiences, I'm currently serving by the appointment of former President Bush and President Clinton as co-chair of an interfaith advisory committee to help people get back up on their feet. And we do have on the board Muslims, Catholics, a Jewish rabbi, Baptists, Methodists, Pentecostals across the board. And we're working together very effectively because we all care about common goals. We have our distinct theologies and our own ideologies, but there are common grounds that we can work together very effectively in many, many cases. Listen carefully. When it comes to heaven, I try to leave that up to God. I certainly believe that Christianity is right, but when it comes down to the final test, who goes and who doesn't? Jesus said, other sheep I have who are not of this fold, them also must I bring. I'll let him identify who those sheep are and stay out of the conversation. End quote. So what is he saying? What is T.D. Jake saying? He's saying, he's using the analogy here in John 10, and he's saying there's one fold that is Christians. They go to heaven. Then there is another fold that might be Buddhists or Muslims or Jews or New Agers or maybe even people who don't even know about Jesus. Jesus has sheep in other folds, and maybe those will get in. We'll just have to wait and see when we get to heaven who those Mysterious sheep are in the other folds which also belong to Jesus. And the implication is you can belong in the Muslim fold and it can bring you in too because there's sheep there. You don't have to, you don't have to join Christianity. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to come out of that flock or that fold because Jesus has sheep in those other folds and he's going to bring them in as well. Very universalist. You see how he misused the text? Now it should be obvious to you as it is to me 
that that is not even close to what Jesus is describing in this passage. Can you see that? It's not even close to it. Has Jesus not said that when he calls, they come out of those other folds? It's not the fold that gets into heaven. It's what? It's the individual sheep in those other folds and in those folds. And when the shepherds call, they, when the shepherd calls and his sheep leave those folds and they leave Islam, they leave Buddhism, they leave Hinduism, they leave uh, Judaism and they come out of those into his flock and become believers. That's the analogy. Not that there are all kinds of these different religious folds and you can belong to any one of them, but eventually he'll bring you all in. That's not the analogy at all. The analogy is that he calls them out of these other folds. So then who are these other folds? The only way of understanding this that makes any sense with the context, and it certainly fits with the rest of John, is to see that Jesus here, when he speaks of other folds, is talking about other folds that are not Jewish folds. He's referring to Gentiles. It's those who are not Jews. Now think of it in the context. Who is the sheep that sparked this entire discourse? It was the man born blind who worshipped, right? He was a Jew. And now Jesus is having a conversation with other Jews, Jewish disciples, Jewish Pharisees in a Jewish city in front of a Jewish temple about a Jewish sheep. And here's Jesus reminding us, I call out to the sheep who are in this fold, and they come out and they follow me. But listen, there are other folds as well. Gentiles, other nations, and I will call my sheep out of those folds so that they may be one. We're not going to have a Jewish church and a Gentile church. We have one church, one flock, one shepherd, and he calls out of the Jewish fold his sheep. He calls out of the Gentile fold his sheep, but he calls them out of those folds into the one flock. This fits with everything we've read in John up to this point about the worldwide intention of the gospel. In John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's not just Jews, it's Jews and what? Gentiles, humanity, not just the Jewish people. Uh, John 3, when John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He wasn't talking, it's not just that he takes away the sin of the Jews, he is the Savior for the Gentiles as well. In Samaria, in John chapter 4, the woman at the well and the Samaritans said, we believe and now have come to understand that he is the Savior of the world. Not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles. He's the propitiation for our sins. And not just ours Jews, but the sins of the whole world, all of humanity, Jews and Gentiles. It's the worldwide scope of the gospel. And Jesus is reminding them, I've been talking about a Jewish sheep and a Jewish temple to Jewish Pharisees, about a Jewish concept, but you have to understand, I have sheep that do not belong to Israel. I'm going to call them also, and they will come out, and they will be one flock with one shepherd. That's what he is describing. There's nothing to do with Muslims getting into heaven. You can't get into heaven just by belonging to some other religious group. You have to belong to Christ. By virtue of the fact that the Father has given you to the Son, and he has called you out of those folds into his arms and made you one flock with one shepherd. I want you to notice here the unity that is being described, the unity of his church when he says in verse 16 that they may will become one flock with one shepherd. Do you notice what Jesus says here? I must call them also. I must. That is the must of divine necessity. Why must he do it? Why is he going to do it? This is the will of him who sent me, John 6.39, that of all that the Father has given to me, I lose how many? None. None. So if he has sheep in those other folds, listen, it is absolutely certain and guaranteed beyond a shadow of a doubt that he will call them and he will call them out. And when we get to the end of time and we are all gathered together as his church, his elect in heaven, we will not stand around and say, you know what, there were sheep in those other folds and they're missing. A lot of them are missing. You didn't do a very good job of calling them. No, Jesus says, I have other sheep and I must bring them also. He had to because he could not fail to do what the Father gave him to do. And what did the Father give him to do? The Father gave him to redeem and to gather together 
all of those who belong to him. If you want to, you can look over at John chapter 11 real quick. I'm just going to give you one quick passage. Verse 47. This is very interesting. This happens at the end of, after the, after the resurrection of Lazarus, when the Jews were plotting together how they were going to kill Jesus. Verse 47 of John 11. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? This man's performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In other words, if the nation follows after Jesus, the Romans will come in and destroy us and we'll lose everything. Verse 49, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. In other words, let's kill him rather than lose the whole nation. Kill him being Jesus. Let's sacrifice Jesus. Let's kill him. That way we can save the nation. And look what John says, verse 51. Now he did not say this on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Listen, but for Jews only? No, verse 52. And not for the nation, the Jews only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That was the intention of the death of Christ. Not just to die for the Jews, but to do what? To gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And John knew and Jesus knew, and looking back on it historically, we know that the intention there was Jews and Gentiles, his church, his chosen one, his people, from amongst all the nations, that we may come into one flock and be one flock with one shepherd. Now, what is it that unites the people of God? You get it here in verse 16. What is it that unites us? Is it the fact that we all have the same nationality? That can't be it. Is it the fact that we all look the same? Is it the fact that we all have the same political persuasion? Is it that we all see every doctrinal issue the same? Is that what unites us? Is it that we all act the same? Is it that we all speak the same language, came from, come from the same geographic location, that we all come from the same period of history? What is it that unites the church? It is that we are called to one shepherd, and we are one flock, Jew and Gentile, in one body, which is the church. What unites the people of God is nothing external. It is something that God has done. In fact, it's everything that God has done that unites the people of God. The people of God are one flock because he calls us with one voice. He calls us into one flock with one good shepherd, which is we are the church. And Christ is our shepherd. It is what God has done in giving us to his son that unites us. It's nothing external. It's nothing in our experience that unites us. It's the fact that we are his people. And he, the good shepherd, laid down his life for the sheep. And that act and his grace and his blessing is what unites and brings together the people of God. You and I can have a unity even if we don't agree on every political issue. You and I can have unity even if we don't agree on every theological issue. You and I can have unity because of what Christ has done. And if we're unified at the gospel, then there's a thousand things that you could believe or think that I don't care about. And it should be reciprocal that way. What unites us is what God has done for us in Christ. That's the unity. I want you to notice one last thing. With this, this I'll close. What is it that comes first? Is it belonging or believing? Look at verse 16. I have, present tense, other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Which comes first, the having or the bringing them in? We've seen this before. It is the fact that he has them, they are his, that secures the fact that he is going to bring them in. It is belonging to Christ which precedes our believing. In fact, my believing in him is the product of my belonging to him. 
You belonged to Jesus Christ. You were his sheep when he uttered these words. When he uttered these words, he was thinking of you in one sense. Maybe not specifically, as if he was rattling off every name of every Christian who would ever live. But by implication, he is thinking of you. I have other sheep. Jim Osmond, Thomas Leo, Tim Carr, Dave Rich. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. They belong to me. And there's going to come a time when he brings us all in. It is our belonging to him which precedes our believing. It is our believing which is a result of our belonging. Because we belong to him, I have come to him. And he has gathered us in. How did he do this? That's the other part of the analogy that we looked at. He called and the sheep heard his voice and they came. He gathers them in also and makes them all one people, one flock, one church, one God and Father of us all, the unity of the faith. He died for us because he owns us, because he knows us, and because he unites his sheep. All of that is bought and paid for in the death of Jesus Christ for his bride, the church. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so grateful for the blessings that you have bestowed upon those who belong to you and your Son. We thank you that you chose us, that you loved us, that you predestined us to salvation for your eternal glory, and that you look down um, upon us in our sin, in our misery, in our wantonness, and in our deadness, and you've raised us together and seated us together in Christ Jesus, granting us and giving us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We thank you for that immense grace which you have given. It is all your doing. And may we never be prideful, arrogant, or condescending, but be reminded day by day that this is all grace that is undeserved and unmerited, and it is entirely a gift. We praise you. We thank you for this goodness and this kindness, and we stand in awe over our salvation and the goodness that you have shown to your people. It truly is a reflection of your inherent goodness and your infinite love for us, and we thank you for it. We thank you that it is exclusive to us. We thank you for the fact that you have lavished it so graciously upon us. And we pray that we would grow in our understanding and knowledge of Christ and our love for him, that we might live in obedient, holy lives to honor and glorify you, our great God and our King. We pray these these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.